Welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Nathan Berry. I'm the CEO at ConvertKit, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barrett Brooks. He's the COO here at ConvertKit, and we're on a mission to help creators earn a living. This show is about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. I'm Barrett Brooks. This is Alexis Tyke Miller. It is Monday, June 15th, and this is episode 54 of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you're listening to this on audio, it means you're a week behind because you listen on audio. So one of these days, you should tune into the live show because that's where the action is. Um, I'm joined by Alexis today because Nathan is on vacation, rightfully so. He's got uh, today and tomorrow off, so he'll be back on Friday for casual Q&A Friday. But in the meantime... We are, it's just a huge pleasure, huge honor to have Alexis back. Uh, Alexis, how are you doing? Red, yellow, green. Thank you for that glorious intro, my friend. I love the energy. This is going to be a good, a good episode for sure. I'm feeling pretty green today. Nice. I have a latte in hand and I'm excited about this topic of meaningful work. A latte of what? This is a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, you got me. <laughs> it's a cinnamon latte. And uh, it's a latte of caffeine. Mm, so. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a little a of caffeine of caffeine over here, uh, but it is oat milk and caffeine. Support that, a- aka coffee. Uh, I am green. It's a good day. Excited to start the week. Um, it's the first week in a while where I have some actual time on my calendar that's mm-hmm. not occupied. Uh, so I'm excited about that. We've been uh, hiring for a role that's going to be reporting up to me, a data analytics role. And uh, my portion of that work is done for the moment, which is exciting. Um, yeah, had a good weekend. Very restful. I've been taking br- true breaks on weekends, even though that goes against my nature. Uh, so that's been leading to me feeling more rested on Mondays, which is the point. That is the point. Um, today on the show we are going to talk about uh, meaningful work. And I think if there's a through line of my entire career, it would be this question of what makes work meaningful. Mm -hmm. Um, Why that has been such a driving question for me, I'm not exactly sure, but I do know a lot of the influences that have factored into that. And I've kind of landed on what I'm calling an eight-part framework to, or eight contributors to meaningful work that I thought we could use as kind of our outline for the day. And honestly, I'm not sure if they are all necessary for meaningful work. This is very much still a hypothesis, which is why I'm excited to talk to you about it, Alexis, because I think you've thought a lot about what meaningful work is as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see what we find. So uh, hopefully this will be participatory, including with everyone listening in. Love to hear y'all, uh, your opinions on what makes work what makes work meaningful as well. Um, And we'll get into it. But before we do, Alexis, you highlighted a really fascinating uh, statistical reality Mm -hmm. that is a connection between meaningful work and mental health. So I thought we could start there and just kind of highlight, does this even matter? And if so, why? Yeah. So over the last couple of years, on a personal note, I really struggled with depression and anxiety and I wanted to understand the why behind it. And I didn't always feel like that. Whenever you're um, in a season of depression, it doesn't feel like you want to read about it. You certainly don't want to do any research about it. You're so focused on your feelings and trying to overcome it and trying to honestly just make it through the day in some days. 
But I finally got to this really healthy place for myself where I wanted to start researching depression and the causes of it. And the root of that was around antidepressants. What did antidepressants work and things like that? So I picked up a book called Lost Connections, and I highly recommend it. Even if you are someone that doesn't struggle with depression, um, maybe you struggle with anxiety. This book covers uh, both, but it's called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And one of the big pieces of uh, Johan Hari's framework is the disconnection from meaningful work. There's nine different disconnections, and one of them is meaningful work. And he goes into all these statistics, and this is a a book um, heavily backed by data and science with this beautiful narrative of his own story through it. Um, But it was the study that Gallup, uh, Gallup did a poll in 2011 to 2012, and they followed millions of people over 142 countries and focused on work. And if people were finding meaning from their work and what they found was only 13% of the millions of people that they tracked uh, found that they were actively engaged and happy at work. So only 13% of millions of people that they were tracking and then 63% were not engaged and 24% were actively disengaged. And when he goes farther into this research, he found that Even if uh, two people were at the same status, same job, same pay, but one person felt as if they had a lack of control over their work or lack of meaning from their work, they were um, a higher risk for depression and severe anxiety. And uh, he did all these different studies. And it was really interesting. And I can even think back to seasons of my life that were more difficult um, or or just felt strenuous or tension. And I can point back to feeling disconnected with work. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and like it or not, I mean, work is a huge part of our lives, right? I mean, we spend as many hours at work as we do doing pretty much anything else. Um, Often more, more hours than we even spend with our families we spend Mm -hmm. at work. And so it's a, a massive contributor to just our life overall. I know for me, some of the times when I've felt most depressed or anxious have also been connected to work. Um, the two times I can specifically think of are first when I got about six months into my job as a management consultant, starting my career. And like the whole pitch around management consulting was this glorious lifestyle of traveling every week to your client and, you know, racking up airline miles and wearing nice suits and solving important problems for the most prestigious businesses in the world. Mm-hmm. And several things. One, I found myself not traveling. I was on an in-town client, which makes sense if you think about it from a cost standpoint, it makes more sense for you to be in town if you can. Two, I was in a kind of on a project that was tangential to my core focus. And so it wasn't the focus area I was supposed to be in. Three, it was at a prestigious company that did not feel prestigious whatsoever. It felt quite miserable in their office. And four, it just was not what I was hoping it was going to be. And I realized that there was this misalignment between what I find meaningful or like what my beliefs are, which is one of the things that we'll talk about and what I was doing at work every day. And that was a bad place to be for several months there. It was quite, quite difficult for me. And I know that for uh, hearing a lot of creator stories over time, a lot of people before they become a creator find themselves in this place Yeah. and becoming a creator is a way of taking that control back. It's kind mm-hmm. of like this act of saying, okay, well, if that's what's true, then I better do something about this. And right. where else could I have more control than being my own boss? Right. Mm-hmm. 
The second time that I felt it was at my last job at Fizzle. There were a lot of things contributing to it, but I think the biggest thing was I felt like we had this, we were on to something. We were uh, an education company for creators. We were producing all of our own in-house courses. Um, we built the platform that we operated. I mean, it was like a, a really high potential kind of environment where we had control over everything and we had all of our own um, proprietary technology and teaching. And it just felt like we weren't serving. Like we really weren't focused on our customers. We were, we were overly focused on ourselves and the lifestyle we wanted and what was interesting to us, which sometimes is good, but I felt like we could have a lot more focus on the customer. And my lack of ability to change that because I wasn't a founder of that company. I wasn't really even an executive because it was a small team. It was the one time in my, I have absolutely nothing against mantras. I think mantras can be really healthy ways of reprogramming our brain to think new thoughts about ourselves right. or about the world. Never in my life have I needed mantras, which is not saying like I'm better than people who need mantras, just I never had needed them. Mm -hmm. But in that time of my life, I mean, I spent probably an hour or two every morning journaling and saying mantras to myself, reaffirming that like, I am a good person. I have, I am talented. I believe that business can be a force for good in the world. Like all of these different things, just to reassert to myself what I believed was true and not fall into this like deep pit of, oh my God, am I ever going to get out of this? Because sometimes so much time goes by that you do lose sight of that. You do lose sight of those mantras, that inner voice, uh, that intuition that's building up in you. That's like your gut being like, mm, this isn't a lie. Right. You're out of alignment. And then sometimes when you just go so far down the path of being out of alignment with meaningful work, it's really difficult to look back, one, see how you got there. And two, like, where do I actually go from here? Mm -hmm. Now that I've become aware of it, now I need to put this awareness into action. And that can be really scary. That step of recognizing I am out of alignment with meaningful work. Now, what am I going to do about it? Because there is a piece of that that can be of privilege of deciding right. to quit your job and decide like, that's not something that everyone can do. Right. And so you also have to think through that as well. Yeah, totally. Um, that's one reason why I love, um, Sean McCabe's book overlap is mm -hmm. it kind of talks about that challenge yeah. of needing to take care of yourself and your family, which is one of the elements we'll get into, but also needing to take care of yourself, needing mm -hmm. to find something to do with your time every day that you can sustain. Okay. So I want to get into it because I bet these, a lot of these things will reveal some other stories. And for anyone listening in, that's used to the 30 minute format that we've been on, um, doing daily for a lot of the time that we've been doing the show. Now that we've gone to twice a week, we're, we're kind of freeing ourselves up to go longer. So you can expect somewhere between 30 minutes and an hour. Um, and really we're just going to go as long as it takes to cover a topic and then we'll cut it off. So we're not aiming for a time we're aiming for complete coverage of a topic and then go from there. So just an FYI, if you're a long time listener. Okay. I want to get into the first one. So the first thing that I think contributes to meaningful work, uh, is that you have to be solving an important problem or solving an unimportant problem in an important way. So I want to explain this a little bit. And then what my hope is, Alexis, is that you'll either challenge or, uh, kind of get into these points from personal experience as well with me. Um, so this first name. one, that's right. That's right. Alexis Challenger Tyke Miller. <laughs> uh, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
Okay, so solving an important problem. I think about important problems as kind of society level problems. This is mm-hmm. how I define them. It's like battling racism or solving climate change, sending people to Mars so that we're a multiplanetary species. Let's see, providing uh, hope for children in foster care, like providing housing for people in natural disaster zones, things like that. Things mm-hmm. where oftentimes they're equated to nonprofit work actually, but the more that social enterprise has become a tool and B corporations have become a tool, I think that right. there's more for-profit uh, organizations who are working in this kind of field. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by solving an important problem. And for me, I think that's one of the clearest ways people can identify with, okay, this matters. I should be doing this. This is like something that's worth my time. But on the other side is unimportant problems solved in important ways. And here's what I mean by that. I would put ConvertKit in this category. Email marketing is a solved problem. ConvertKit does not need to exist for people to be able to send emails. Right. Um, It's not going to directly solve climate change or racism or anything else. And I think that the way we run this company is doing this work in a very important way. The way we relate to a mission is doing this work in an important way. The way we build people up and we share ownership with everyone in the company and share profits with everyone here. And so I think that is a viable alternative when it comes to this first factor of meaningful work is not for every, like I think about gaming companies as a great example. Sometimes games are just for fun. You know, they're not like changing the world. They're just for enjoyment. Right. But the way you run the company, I think can really change, especially the people who work there's lives. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about this one, Alexis? No, I think it's incredibly important in an industry, like an unimportant problem is probably the fashion industry. Like mm-hmm. there's so much, so much fast fashion and there are brands now that have come out and they've slowed it down and they've cared about supply chain and they've cared about the people that are making their clothes and they have contributed to incredible change in the fashion industry and who walks um, on the runway, like everything from inclusion to fashion week to how the clothes are being made. And it's seemingly like fashion. It could be seen very vapid or shallow, but there are companies who are making huge strides to make this a better place. Uh, so I think this is an important one because I think yeah. if if you aren't connected as, you know, there's the organism and there's an organization. And as the organism, if you don't feel really connected to the organization and what they're doing in the world, it's hard to find that meaningful connection between the two. So check. I think this is important. <laughs> love it. Love it. Okay. So that's step one. And so the other thing here is my theory is that you need all of these, or you need most of these in order for work to be meaningful. It can't just be one because for Mm -hmm. example, if you were working at a company, let's say you were working on solving climate change or solving the, the great Pacific plastic patch, but your boss was a jerk, for example, or you were being, uh, you were in a misogynistic environment or you were being harassed. Like, I don't think, I think that that negates the impact of the mission, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So the second factor here that I think is a little softer is that your work should align with your essential beliefs about the world. And when I started writing about this one, I realized how complex beliefs are. Like if you were going to explain beliefs to a five-year-old, what would you explain to them? I would say I could, I sometimes use beliefs and values to yeah. inter- interchangeably. 
So beliefs and values, like I have a, a personal value system and right. I apply them in different topics of my life. I have a value system for work. I have a value system for friendships. Like for example, in friendships, I don't talk about people. I don't gossip. We don't do that. Like that's a value. That's a, I guess you could mm-hmm. say that's a belief. Yeah. And when you think about the different categories of your life, you can, you can kind of narrow down s- specific beliefs and values that you operate out of. So it's almost yeah. like this place that you act out of and mm-hmm. it's, and then it's when you see it acted out and it's out of alignment, you can say, Oh, this doesn't align with my values. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, it made me think of, I actually wasn't planning to share this, but on my website, I have like an about page. That's more about the reader. And then I link to a full bio. That's like my professional history and everything And at the bottom. I, I just kind of include here are, are my values and beliefs about the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it highlights on my faith, serve God's purpose, not mine, put my family first, have the courage to lead through service, use business as a force for good, things like this. This might be too many. I mean, I usually encourage people like three to five is usually more maintainable than whatever this is, 10 or something like that. But My thesis here is that if I were working for a business that directly conflicted with, for example, using business as a force for good. So if I felt like largely we were doing good work, but then this area of the business over here is actively doing harm, that might make it hard for me to find the work meaningful. I might Mm -hmm. end up really conflicted by whether I'm contributing to furthering my beliefs in the world or not. Right. Um, Being a steward of the natural world, that goes back to like your fashion example, for example. Mm -hmm. For example, for example, uh, that goes back to your fashion example, where I think if I were working for a fashion company and and the approach was fast fashion, that might really be hard for me to feel like I could keep showing up there in a, in a really good way. Right. So that's my thesis here is the hard part is you have to know what you believe. Right. And that takes time. Yeah. I, I actually was talking with a friend and a client earlier this week about establishing values. And she said, I have never sat down and thought about my value system ever. Not that that was a conversation about shame or judgment. It was more of like, wow, I didn't realize that there are these values that I already operate from. And then she had certain values, but lacked values that fostered creativity or fostered relationship. And so we were thinking through some of her value systems. And I think like, for example, if I was working at a company where they were acting out of my value alignment, it would be very difficult to want Mm. to continue to work there or at least try to have a conversation about it. Like if if a conversation is welcome at your workplace, then then definitely try to use your voice and advocate for that value system as well. Yeah, totally. And, you know, if I think about some of my beliefs, like taking care of protecting the natural world, another way of framing that is that I think the natural world is the foundation for all human potential because without a place that we can live. Obviously that makes things complicated. Mm-hmm. We don't really impact that one way or the other at ConvertKit. Um, you know, you might argue that there are some people that use our platform that promote sustainable practices, mm-hmm. or you might say by being remote, you know, maybe we pollute less than other companies or some things like that, but that's not a core part of what we do. Right. So one of my things about your work aligning with your beliefs is I think it's actually that your work can't conflict with your beliefs. I don't know that it has to be actively promoting all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Definitely not aligning with everything, you know, because, um, as a person of faith, I would never walk into a workplace and expect everyone to have the same faith or belief system as me. Um, and so I think just making sure that it's a safe place to express your faith of all different religions, 
that's very important. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of where it's, it's, are my beliefs, are, is my belief system at least safe in this work environment? Oh, I like that. My beliefs are safe here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that a lot. That's a great framing. Um, okay. So number three, this one I'm still working on, but I think I can share a couple of stories and, and maybe you will be able to, to Alexis that highlights why I think it matters. And that's that I think for work to be meaningful, we have to be surrounded with people we care about and who care about us. My experience here, and maybe this is one where it's like a meaning amplifier. It might not be necessary entirely, but another study Gallup did, Gallup's got some really wonderful research around a lot of stuff related to work. One of the studies they did was they found that if you have a best friend at work, you're significantly more likely to be engaged. And I find that to be true myself. I certainly have felt like when I have someone I'm really close to, at least one person that I'm really close to, I tend to be happier at work. The other thing they found is that people tend to uh, quit jobs or stay in jobs more to do to their managers oftentimes than other people at the organization. And so having a manager who really cares deeply about me has also been something that's factored into what I find meaningful at work. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, um, there's two things that I've experienced at work that have taken away from this. One is when there's no real relationship to anyone at work. Mm Uh, that was very much what I felt in management consulting. It was lonely. It was impersonal. It felt like, it almost felt like we all put on our suits every day so that we didn't have to share any of ourselves. It was like, that was our, our layer of armor. armor. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I felt basically no connection to anyone at that job and that didn't work very well for me. I think that would have changed things if I had felt a strong sense of connection. And the other one is when, Uh, I have been in a position where someone just didn't seem to care about me or they actively seem to undermine the effort I was putting in. Mm -hmm. And, oh God, that is so demoralizing. If when you're really putting in work and then someone comes behind you and, and one experience I had, for example, was someone took my work, like took a project I had started on and they took it on. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. I mean, I guess that's fine. Not really though, though? you know, especially (laughs) after it happens a couple of times, it's like, okay, well, I mean, I guess I'll just go do something else. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was everything I was working on. So those have been two of my experiences. I don't know if you have any here. Yeah, I would say, you know, some of my best friends are at ConvertKit and, you know, they were at my wedding. Like Mm -hmm. I'm, I feel like everywhere I go, and this might be a personal value of mine is I'm always trying to seek out deeper connections with people. Mm-hmm. And I have been in environments where people were not open to that. And it was very difficult to collaborate and create together. And, and another thing about being in, you know, surrounding yourself with people that we care about really what this is about to me is trust and advocacy. Mm. Because if I can't be around people who at least want to hear my voice, at least want to, you know, build trust with me so that we can have open minds of feedback and ideas. And if we disagree on something, there's that trust and that advocacy there that at least sets the foundation. You don't have to be my best friend, but we have this mutual respect for each other where at least the open line of communication is there. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a really important piece of this is the care that you have for people that you work with. It, it goes beyond just caring. It's that care acted out as yeah. trust and advocacy. 
So I think that's almost like the byproduct of caring. Mm. Um, and then I could say the only opposite side of surrounding yourself with people that you care about is sometimes when you get so close and so familial with people, it does become difficult to give that feedback and to, you know, cause you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. You're worried about the friendship at work. And so just making sure that there are, I'm, I'm a huge boundary gal, like big on boundaries. So just making sure that there are boundaries there too, where you're still yeah. protecting the integrity of the work without compromising, you know, the thrivingness of the friendship. Yeah. I love that. So there are two other pieces in this framework that I almost, I almost wonder if they are subsets mm. uh, of this working with people you care about. And so I'm going to, I'm going to highlight both of them and then maybe we can talk through them. Yeah. So the first thing is, um, communicating transparently. And uh, one of my readers, I, I started outlining this framework in a, an email sequence to everyone who joins my email list. And one of my readers responded and he was like, I'm really excited about this. I don't know about that last one though, about communicating transparently. Does that really matter? And so I just, I want to come back to that because I think it highlights something that you just said, which is, are you actually being real with people? Right. And I think it's a significantly different experience of work when people are being real with one another and being fully transparent. So that's the first one that I think relates to working with people that care about you and that you care about. The second one is I almost wrote down trust and autonomy. I almost wrote that down. Actually, I did write it down. That's what was there first. Okay. And then I said, well, what is that about really? Like why trust and autonomy? Mm -hmm. And here's what I realized. Well, at least in my life anyways, failure has been led to my biggest points of growth in my life, in my career. Mm -hmm. It's like successes are great, but those are usually based on past failures. It's because mm -hmm. I learned something that I am then eventually able to succeed. And learning usually comes from failure, big and small for me. And so I think trust and autonomy are actually about having the freedom to fail at work. Yes. And I think having that safety to know I can screw this up and I'm not going to get fired immediately. I'm right. like, we're going to have a conversation mm -hmm. because you care about me and I care about you and you want me to grow. And so if I mess this up, that's okay. So those are the two things that I think relate exactly to what you are saying is um, we have the freedom to fail and we communicate transparently. I think within an environment where you care about people and they care about you, those things can happen. Yeah. I mean, I mean I've experienced that at ConvertKit. I made a really big mistake last year. And Nathan got on a call with me and we got to talk through it. And there was a conversation. It was him trying to gain clarity, me trying to give context. And then we were able to come out of the conversation with a plan and also an understanding of each other and how it happened and how it wouldn't happen again. Mm -hmm. But we had this trust and this foundation of a, of a relationship where I knew that he had my best interest. And he knew that I had his best interest and the best interest of the company. And so whenever you're able to go into conversations, knowing that about each other there, you, you just kind of, you can sift through all the BS, mm -hmm. you know, like, it's like, no, we both care and we both recognize that something bad happened. Let's figure out how to fix this issue, um, out of that mutual care. Yeah. Uh, totally. I, our response to feedback, whether it's from the natural environment, you know, mm -hmm. like we hammer our finger or it's from an interpersonal conversation. It's, it's raw, it's emotional yeah. in both cases, but I think it's, it's even different triggers. It's those like higher level triggers mm -hmm. when it's interpersonal. And 
there are two things. When I first receive a piece of feedback, uh, just the like well of emotion that comes up from that is so hard. Yeah. But the second thing is, if I can get into a conversation where I feel safe to say, I screwed up and where the other person can honestly say, yes, you screwed up and yeah. here's why. Mm-hmm. And I forgive you. The relief and the release that comes from the, the two-sided acknowledgement of that is mm-hmm. incredible. But like you said, if they, if I don't feel like they care about me, I don't want their feedback yes. because now it's unsafe. Yes. Yeah. A safe environment to give and receive feedback also comes down to like that trust and that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I feel like someone's giving me feedback, but they lack integrity or, or I'm seeing them continually act out of alignment with my values and even their own values, it's difficult for me to take that advice on and try to change anything about my life whenever. Um, but something that I've learned when it comes to feedback um, and that contributes to meaningful work is separating feelings from feedback. Mm-hmm. And even though I might feel a certain way about whoever is giving me the feedback or how they delivered it or their tone, there still is maybe some truth or something to be learned from the feedback itself. Mm-hmm. And so this is a practice I've been trying to do the last six or seven months to really like, I want to grow, but I can't limit my growth just because I didn't like how it was communicated to me mm-hmm. or just because I didn't like who communicated it to me. I still have the desire to grow. And so that's my responsibility. And I keep coming back to that as, as a person is like, this is my responsibility. It's my responsibility to take that in, figure out where to put it and then hopefully learn from it. But I can't put it back on that person and say, well, you might've, you might be right, but I didn't like your delivery. You know, yeah. it's like, you've got it. You might take it in stride as well. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think, and so maybe all of these kind of three elements go together a little bit. You've mm-hmm. got to have the personal care for there to be a productive environment to communicate transparently. But when there's care, transparent communication is essential both ways, positive, negative, just open communication. I think it also reinforces the trust that exists Mm -hmm. because like, for example, we have a standardized salary system here at ConvertKit. And I think there's great value in it just being published. Like if you want to know what someone at whatever level makes in another role, you can go look at it. Now we don't say exactly what level every person in the organization is. Maybe we will someday, but today we don't. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, you know, the range of salaries at ConvertKit. I think there's value to that transparency in the organization because it it defines the realm of possibility for everyone. It helps if you have that nagging question of like, am I being taken advantage of, for example, you can somewhat answer that question with available information that's already out there. Uh, If that's combined with these abilities, the ability to have these conversations directly, I think that can, it adds meaning to work Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And then on the freedom to fail side, I think that's really, that's really about growth. To me, that's just the key to growth. If you let people fail, now I don't think you tolerate the same failures over and over and over, you know, then you have a performance problem, obviously. Right. Right. Um, And that's real, but letting people fail, like just giving them enough room to go out and find some things out and learn some things for themselves Mm -hmm. is huge. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's see, that's three and four. No, no, no. Go, go, go. I was just going to say, there's even been um, circumstances or uh, situations where I've moved forward on something and you, you let me, and then you come back and you'll say, okay, love this. Here are some things that I would have improved on. Or if I did something, because something that I've learned the most, especially as a woman in business is I'll ask questions in hopes to get affirmation. 
mm-hmm. in hopes of, will you just tell it, am I headed in the right direction? You know, it's that insecurity at work. And mm-hmm. that's something I've always worked through and something that the leadership at Convert Kit has done really well is when I ask a question, hey, what do you guys think about this? What we should we do here? That question is then in turn asked back to me. Okay, I love that question, Alexis. What do you think? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's not done out of um, any sort of ulterior motive. It's just this, hey, I actually want to know what you think. It seems to be important to you. So I'd love for you to first tell me what you think. And I think that also reinforces that freedom to fail in the in the way of using your voice too. Of like, right. I'm bringing something up. I don't know if it's important. I'd love to have a conversation about it. And for that to be reinforced is also great. It's not always like the action of being acted out, doing something and then failing at it can also be in communication style as well mm-hmm. and learning how to properly do that too. Yeah, totally. And I think part of the goal there is just to reinforce the fact that you're perfectly capable, you know, yeah, like giving you the chance to work some ideas out out loud instead of looking for someone else to give you theirs. Mm-hmm. Because that's, I think a lot of people especially men in business will just steamroll people. And I've certainly done that in my career at times. And that can lead to others feeling like there's no room for their own ideas. There's no room for them to step up and share what they think should happen next. And I think that's really what freedom to fail is about is sometimes you got to go a little bit slower, but long-term you get a lot more capacity from people. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. So let's see, we've done five so far, so far, solve an important problem or solve an unimportant problem in an important way. It should align with our essential beliefs, surround us with people we care about, give us the freedom to fail and communicate transparently. So we've got three more here. The next one is kind of a practical one. It's almost like a counterbalancing factor to the other ones, which is that I think you have to have a base level of financial security in order for work to be meaningful. Mm. I think, and here's why I think that. I think there's some element of meaningful work that has to have longevity. There has to be the ability to sustain it in order for it to be truly meaningful or else it's just an idea. You know, and ideas can be important to you, but for work to be meaningful, I think over time there has to be impact and a commitment to it. Mm -hmm. And without financial security, and we see this across every economy, just repeatedly, I think this has revealed the degree of importance that there is with it. With financial security, you can keep doing the work. Mm-hmm. Without it, you will wake up every day trying to figure out where the next dollar is coming from. And I know this personally because when I was running my first business, I remember the day I gave my mother her credit card back. I had, I had quit my job as um, a management consultant and I had just had this leftover credit card from college that was like, in case of emergency, you can use this. Mm-hmm. Please do not screw me over as your mother. <laughs> and it always felt like this kind of security blanket. And there was mm-hmm. one day I woke up and I realized, okay, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to feel like I have a security blanket that's not my own. Because yeah. my mom's trying to earn her own way in the world too. She's not like some rich person with a bunch of money that can just afford for me to do whatever I want. And I handed it back to her. And I remember the feeling I had of number one, being in control of my life. Mm -hmm. And number two, knowing that I was truly on my own now and I needed to find my way. Well, for the first year and a half of my business, I think I had some money saved up from my consulting job. My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was making, I don't know, 35 grand a year at her entry level public relations job. And I was making nothing from my business. 
And we were living together in an apartment in Brookhaven, Georgia, you know, like one of these post-college apartments, not very much square feet, old, you know, carpeted, carpet's kind of, it's not nasty, but it's definitely not nice. <laughs> it's borderline and you've got some like garage sale kind of furniture, hodgepodge. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Been there. Um, <laughs> and I mean, we were like, we were working for what we could get. And when I showed up to work, I can just remember thinking, I've got to find a way to make money. And when this played itself out the most was when it was actually at the most inopportune time, I was growing my audience. I was running a business called Living for Monday. It was it was to try and help college students and young professionals find meaningful work through uh, this one half of the curriculum was helping them develop self-awareness, define their beliefs, understand what they want from work. And then the second half was just like practical, tactical. How do you write a resume? How do you write a cover letter? How do you search for companies that align with your beliefs? That kind of mm-hmm. thing. Well, I, I had written a series of articles that had started getting picked up on Hacker News and then Lifehacker republished a couple of my things. And I, w- I was hitting a stride where I was getting like hundreds or thousands of email subscribers at a time. And I remember the second time Lifehacker published one of my articles and I had another big like thousand subscriber day, something about that was like, oh my God, I got to hurry up and make money because I wouldn't make any money yet. I was just writing content to try and grow the audience so that I could make money later. Mm -hmm. And when I shifted from my job is to build my audience to my job is to make money, the audience building stopped because I kind of had time for one or the other. It was like, I make a product or I keep writing. And so I stopped writing and I started making a product and then my audience got stale and then my audience stopped growing and then I stopped publishing and I got out of the habit. And I think if I look back to one point in that journey, there's two, but this was the critical one of operating the business where I paused and that screwed everything up from there. That I was doomed from there for that business not to make it. And it didn't make it. But the reason was that I needed money. Mm -hmm. We weren't We weren't like in poverty for sure. $35,000 a year is not nothing. Uh, And I would never say that. And it's not, you don't have any frills in life when that's what is going on. Right. There's no excess. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you need that excess to be able to run a business. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's some amount of just kind of, you know, we've talked about it on the show before of as minimum viable income. Mm-hmm. There is some amount of minimum viable income that you have to get to and then probably get a little bit above. Data says it's $70,000 a year of income. That's what they kind of say is like, that's the barrier beyond which more money doesn't really make you happier and below which you're still kind of struggling for more money. Interesting. And so I would call that out. I don't know if it has to be that number, but something like that I think has to be in place for work to continue to be meaningful over time. What do you think about mm-hmm. that one? I th- So... You know, it kind of falls under that moneyness doesn't make you happy situation. Yeah. And um, I think that this is such an interesting conversation because if you don't have money, you can't really make a whole lot of money because mm-hmm. you have to have some sort of foundation to to grow off of. Now, it is a it is a position where you can say, I'm going to chase meaningful work and I'm going to chase my purpose. I don't care about money. That's also a privileged statement saying Mm -hmm. I'm going to go after the meaningful work and the purpose without really, you know, caring as much about the money that I'm able to make from it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think there's this, you know, your physiological needs, it's almost like allow for a base level of like physiological needs to be met. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so shelter, water, food, 
And then from there, anything like that excess that we were talking about, you're able to build that foundation from that excess. So I think, I think that's what resonates with me the most. Um, I was very motivated by money out of college because I, I connected money to status, to fame, Mm -hmm. to ego. And like ego is one of my, it's one of my lesser strengths as I like to call it. And I'm very, (laughs) I'm very aware of it there. And so I fight to, 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 um, be very, I have my, my finger on my ego all the time Mm -hmm. and I know where it's at and I know the level and the barometer in which it's always either fluctuating. And a lot of that's connected to money for me. And so, uh, when I took that out a couple of years ago and said, I want to operate from a place where I care about my work over maybe the dollar amount I make. I said it from a place of my physiological needs are being met. Yep. And so now I feel like I can make the choice to choose meaningful work over more money. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's that's spot on. That's very much what I was getting at here is is you have to have those needs met or else you can't keep going. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different ways to have them met. You know, maybe you grew up wealthy and maybe you don't have to earn money. And that's mm-hmm. one way. Maybe you have a spouse who makes money and you don't have to earn money. You can do it that way. Maybe you earn a salary. So you go to work for someone instead of starting something yourself. That's a way to, to have that basic sustenance. Right. But, um, if you run off and you go for too long without being able to meet your own needs, I just think you end up burning out and you can't sustain it. Totally agree. Totally agree. And then, you know, when you're starting a business too, you have to get really honest about, am I doing this for the long haul or is this a, is this a passion project? Right. And I think that sometimes in the industry, there's a little bit of a negative view of passion projects of like, oh, it's just a hobby for you. Yeah. Well, no, it's still meaningful work, but it's, you know, it has a beginning, middle and end. And I plan to not do it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of, I want to create this sustainable business that I hope to run for the rest of my life. Those are two very different narratives. And I think it is important to get clear on which one you're wanting to put money into. Yeah. Um, Adam Grant, who's a researcher out of the University of uh, Pennsylvania, the Wharton Business School up there, he uh, authored a paper back a ways now, probably 15 years or something, about answering unanswered callings at work. Hmm. And they did some research with people who didn't have their callings answered through their day job. Either they felt they had multiple callings and so they couldn't answer all of them through their day job or they had a calling that was very strong for them, but it just wasn't practical to earn money that way. And one of the things they found was that having an outlet for that outside of work really shifts their ability to find meaning Mm -hmm. in work and life. And so I think that that kind of gets at this financial piece is sometimes your day jobs just for the finances, but you limit it, you set those boundaries and then you do You have those passion projects or the side hustles or the nonprofit board you sit on or whatever Mm -hmm. that gives you more of that sense of meaning. Yeah. And the caveat to that is making sure that that day job and where you are getting that stable income is still a healthy work environment totally, and, and not in a place that is therefore taking away from inner, inner, any kind of creative energy that you might have to create right. something on the side. So, you know, the, uh, it kind of yeah. goes hand in hand. Like yes. you've got to have a good, um, even if it's not your life's work, it, it is important because if you're spending 40 hours a week in an environment that doesn't align with any of what we've talked about so far, yep. and then you try to go create from that place, it's really difficult to, to do it. Um, yep. So I, I can see how those two things are definitely connected. 
Yeah. And and I think the ultimate goal is is pure alignment, right? Between mm-hmm. what you do all day and it being meaningful. Right. And so some of it is also just kind of steps towards that direction. Okay. There's two more. Um, this next one, I'm now questioning based on this conversation, which is good. The next one was that uh, meaningful work pushes us to grow. And here's why I'm questioning it is I wonder if that's just a part of having the freedom to fail. There's, there's a little bit of a new thing here, which is that we are seeking out the growth. So being right. allowed to fail versus seeking out areas where we might fail. I, mm-hmm. I, I think about it in the like, you've seen these concentric circles of comfort zone, uh, growth zone, yeah. danger zone, or something like that. I think I mm-hmm. published an article about that a long time ago. And you want to kind of live in that growth zone. I mean, there mm-hmm. are times when you fluctuate in and out, but that growth zone is where failure is available to you, but that you're not just going to magically grow by showing up every day. Right. Uh, it's very a rarely. It's exactly. It's a push-pull. Yeah. And so maybe they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Maybe they're different. I'm not sure. But I do think meaningful work pushes us to grow over time. I think when we get stale, we stop finding as much meaning in the work mm-hmm. uh, because it now has become almost just like repetitive or rote. We're just going from memory rather than actively seeking out something new. Yeah. And the word actively is really motivation. There Mm -hmm. is something inside you that is motivating you to want to grow because you either, you know, the end goal is a promotion, a different role, bigger impact, um, you know, serving in a bigger way to your customer base. Um, Maybe it's getting into leadership. So I think it's that that push to grow. But also, if you don't see a future where you are, there is no motivation to want to grow because it's like, well, I don't see the point. What is, what's the Ooh, point? I like this. So it's almost like the freedom to fail is about the environment you're in and the right. desire to grow is about you. It's yeah. about basically the, the Carol Dweck research on having this growth mindset that mm-hmm. failures are opportunities for growth and you do have the capacity to keep growing over time. Yeah. Everything's internal or external. So the yeah. freedom to fail is all about that external environment. Mm-hmm. And then the push to grow is really that internal desire to want more in the, you know, circumstances or environment that you're in. I like this. Okay. I re-endorse that one as an important factor (laughs) to meaningful work. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Okay. Last one. Let's see. The last one is about, ultimately it's about equity. And the way I phrase it is that meaningful work environments treat people equity and give credit where credit is due. It's kind of marrying two things together, but I think that being celebrated for your work is part of being treated equitably. And so that's why I pulled that out is, is getting credit for your work. Not that that needs to be your motivation, but I think a healthy environment celebrates people in that way. It really makes yeah. sure that people are recognized. But equity or being treated equitably is about much more than just getting credit for your work. Mm-hmm. It's about people of all genders being treated equitably. It's about people of different racial or ethnic backgrounds being treated equitably of all faiths being treated equitably, you know, of every category that something about who you are is not holding you back because of someone else's prejudice or belief system. I think that's really what this is about is being in a place where you're not going to be held artificially back because other people have not done the work to grow. Yeah, no, I, I really like this. And I, I think it's that, um, the affirmation of the path you're on. Mm. 
you know, if you've been working somewhere for years and you're doing this work and you, you deeply care about it and you're internally motivated, but the environment is not, not affirming the purpose, it gets difficult to find that longevity, that sustainability. Because even if you're internally motivated, but externally, no one is, you know, providing the resources that you need, mm. asking you and checking in and making sure, do you have everything that you need to do your job? How can we provide better resources, better training, better uh, mentorship? Like as an organization, how can we help the organism get better? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's kind of where that equitability comes in, uh, is recognizing that everyone at the same company might need different resources in order for them to grow and in order for them to be successful. Yeah. And I think not enough organizations actually recognize that mm-hmm. it's blanket training, it's blanket statements. It's and- equality not right. equity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's even more pronounced when you see someone else getting what they need mm-hmm. and you're not getting what you need. I think that's what this is ultimately about is that favoritism or the preferential treatment is toxic mm-hmm. in my opinion. And it really takes away from the ability to keep showing up and finding work meaningful. Yeah. Cool kids clubs don't belong in business. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. unfortunately they do. Yeah. And so that's where a lot of that, that privilege and a lot of that favoritism uh, is born out of yeah. is all of the same structures of society that were in high school somehow have found their way into business. Yeah. And you see it come out and you, you see it in different organizations or some of my friends that have had really difficult situations happen at work. And it's just because of those boxes that they've been put in uh, on, upon arrival. And it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely not fair. So that's awesome. Well, that's the framework, eight things that contribute to meaningful work. Um, I'm going to keep workshopping this. I'm I'm curious to find out as I continue diving in, are there other things that aren't on the list? Are there things that are on the list that maybe aren't necessary? Mm. But the, the layer I'm really, really excited about is I've, I've kind of like had my personal experiences that have reinforced a lot of this. And then over time, I've read more and more of the kind of academia side of this thing of what's the research telling us and the marriage of those two is where I think this could get really exciting is can we prove any of this with the work that's already been done out there? So anyways, maybe we'll do a part two sometime uh, in the future that marries some of that stuff. But in the meantime, greater of the day. Oh, just made my day. Okay. Do you want to go first, Barrett? You go first. By all means, you go first. Okay. Uh, My creator of the day is Feminista Jones. So she is a feminist. She's a writer. She has incredible books. And uh, she's my creator of the day. I have really enjoyed following her, especially in the last couple of weeks, but even prior to that, and all of the education and stats and work that she's doing in a feminist um, social justice space has been incredible. So big fan of Feminista Jones. Love that. My creator of the day is Brian Stevenson. Um, my wife and I, I'll go ahead and jump into my resource of the day as well, but my wife and I watched a movie called Just Mercy this weekend. Mm. It is currently free to watch on Amazon Prime through the month of June, 2020. Um, but even when it's not free, it'll be well worth the uh, cost to rent or buy. 
Brian Stevenson is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, Just Mercy is the story of starting that organization and the work that he did coming out of Harvard Law School down in Alabama. It stars Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, two remarkable actors uh, amongst many who are in the film. And it is an emotional journey through the history of this country and the on-the-ground activist work that has to happen to change systems that are broken. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that Brian Stevenson has been doing this work for over 30 years now is remarkable. And it is the perfect parlay between our topic of the day and the work he has done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he is a, a testament to what it looks like to do meaningful work and sustain it over a really long period of time. Um, I would guess that, that I'm, not, I'm not saying that like he felt meaningful or felt the work was meaningful every day, but there were a lot of times when the systems he was working within uh, made him question whether that was true. But uh, yeah. remarkable movie, remarkable story, remarkable organization that you can still donate to right now today that is more relevant, maybe more relevant than ever uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of what the country and what the world's going through right now. Yeah, I, I watched that um, about a month ago. And it is an incredible, it, the criminal justice system. Mm, broken. Very broken. Um, it actually makes, well, I'll, maybe I'll share two resources of the day, uh, just because that we were talking about the criminal justice system and all of the racism and systems that need to change within that is a podcast called Wrongful Convictions by Jason Flom. Jason does a ton of work um, with uh, legal resources, trying to get people that have been wrongfully convicted out of jail and a lot of people of color and people of the black community have suffered for that um, incredible podcast. And he has a lot of organizations that you can donate to, to provide legal resources for people that are either on death row or doing life for crimes that they did not commit. Um, great, great podcast and resource. Another one is uh, a workshop by a friend of mine. We're in the same mastermind. Her name is Trudy LeBron. I'm going to drop this actually in the chat for those of you that are with us live on YouTube, but she did a workshop called Show Up and Serve. And if you're in the coaching industry or consulting or you're working with clients one-on-one, it's a workshop for uh, white coaches and consultants on specifically how to show up right now and in the months and years to come uh, for your uh, clients of color or clients uh, in the Black community. So I just dropped that in the chat in, um, in YouTube, but you can also just Google Trudy LeBron, uh, show up and serve, and that'll also pop up as well. Love it. Here's my thought of the day. Um, I think work environments and companies and history and everything else can kind of beat us down to the point where we end up questioning or even flat out not believing that work can be meaningful. I know I was in that place, uh, you know, several months into my career at, at Ernst & Young as a management consultant. And that's not to say all management consultants are miserable. I was just miserable as a management consultant. But work can be meaningful. It can for many, many people around the world. It's meaningful. And it's not just entrepreneurs either. It's people who work within organizations or who work on behalf of other people and causes that they believe in. And I'm not sure if these eight things are exactly what makes work meaningful, but I think they're contributors for sure. Mm -hmm. And so if you are in a place where you're questioning, "Mm, I'm not sure, I don't know if I should place hope in this idea because what if it disappoints me? It might, 
it might disappoint you. But also, it might lead you to a place where work is an expression of what you believe in the world. Uh, work aligns with who you are as a person. And I think that when we unlock people's potential in that way, we put them on a path that gives them meaning. I think that's where change comes from. And um, change ultimately is what we're in the business of as creators. That's what we do. So if you're just getting started or you're thinking about, you know, should I keep going or anything else? Uh, my answer is yes, you should. And you should do it in a way that makes it meaningful for you. So that's the episode today, y'all. Thanks for joining Alexis. Thank you for having me. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you didn't pick it up from the show, we make a tool called ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. If you want to give ConvertKit a try, you can go to landingpage.new to launch your next creative project. You'll be able to build a landing page and send emails for up to 500 subscribers totally for free. So again, that's landingpage.new. You can get started with your free ConvertKit account today. Yeah.